0: My mom is from New Zealand originally. My dad is from uh, Iraq. And they met in Australia, had their first kid in Australia, eventually moved to Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So at a certain point, they thought it would be a good idea to try living back there. It it's, wasn't? Well, I was like 13, 14, and we did it. So I, I, I lived there for a couple of years as a teenager, but I didn't see my father much. Mm. So after two years, he was like, This isn't working. Everyone yeah. Come back.
1: Was that a good place to spend formative years?
0: Yeah, I was lucky. I don't know what the Bay Area was like. Coming from Los Angeles, which doesn't have great public transport, it's getting better. It was really good because at 14, 13, 14, you want to start getting a little bit of independence, Mm -hmm. you know, and being able to just...
1: You're in that spot where you can't quite drive. where you can
0: take a bus and walk and take a train. And it's good to be bored. It's good to get smacked around by strangers. It's good to have weird interactions. Mm-hmm. I think 13, 14 is really good for that.
1: Clearly you like Los Angeles. You're there again. I do like
0: LA. I think there's something weirdly unpretentious about it. It feels...
1: That's the exact opposite of everything I know about well, Los Angeles.
0: Well, who's most of the people who do talk about LA, who have the voice to speak about Los <laughs> Angeles, are usually comedians coming from New York or San Francisco who come in for a meeting and tell you about LA. And what it really is is you're getting this unintentionally getting an insight into like, let's say David Cross. who mm. uh, used to do a big, uh, he used to do a whole thing about Los Angeles. It tells you more about David Cross, sure. the circle of friends and what he does.
1: Comedians, especially all of my comedian friends have moved to Los Angeles in the last 10 years. So there's something, I, don't know. I
0: just think it's visually. I like it. I like looking yeah. at it and I like drawing it. And it's like any mega city. There's like a lot of, there's a million problems mm-hmm. and there's a lot I don't like about it, but, uh, with a city that big, you can kind of carve out sure. your own little piece. Meaning like I yeah. know – like from my house, I don't even take the freeway to go downtown, right? I I go through uh, Elysian Park. I go past Dodger State. I make this like sort of extra long but pleasant drive mm-hmm. to get to downtown. In a big city, you can sort of maneuver a way of life that is solely idiosyncratic in yours. You know what I mean? The- Maybe you can do it in a small town too. But I'm just saying like my version of L.A. Yeah.
1: I like. The two things I will point to, I'm not trying to <laughs> dissuade you from your enjoyment of Los Angeles. No, I also hate it. It's, but, it's a back and forth. Because I was out there a couple of weeks ago, actually. So one of them is obviously the, the traffic situation wherein I'm there once a year. I'm trying to get my friends together. And it's like deciding between the east side and the west side. And... Yeah. No one will ever cross between the two. Right. Cuz it's, you know, an right. added 2-3 hours every way. And then the other thing is the fact that much more so than New York, which is very diversified in terms of business, it's it's an industry town. It's yeah. And I think that's part of the reason why it gets a bad rap. It's
0: a nightmare. You wouldn't think anyone who's genuinely interested in making movies as a form of personal expression could live there. I think if you do, like someone like Werner Herzog or Paul Thomas Anderson, they live with intense industry blinders on. I'll bet you they do. I don't know either of them, but I bet that they don't engage with the industry the way most people in that town do because it is so wrapped around with the business of it. And it is annoying in that way, but it's a big city. It's more like 50 cities. I think that's the famous Mm -hmm. Dorothy Parker thing. Mm -hmm. It's 50 cities looking for a center or whatever. As far as friends on the west side, yeah, you never see them. You just never see them. Have you had your dalliances with the uh, entertainment industry? I don't think you can avoid it in los angeles if you're an artist of some kind you know so animation work is like pretty much a given beyond that i'd say every cartoonist every writer has taken some weird meetings that hopefully they at least got a free lunch out of where uh, where some schmohawk wants to turn something of theirs into
1: a movie or a show it sounds like you were never taking that aspect (laughs) of things too seriously though
0: No, maybe because living in L.A., Mm -hmm. there's no charm to it. There's no ego boost. It doesn't really mean much. Unless someone like – until like money gets transferred from one bank account into another bank account, until someone actually pays you, it all is just hypothetical. And what I find is most people just want – they want to let you know that they like what you do and they kind of want you to do the work if you want it. But I like comics. Like, so until Blood of the Virgin's done, I can't think of any other projects,
1: you know? For a lot of people, I think it has sort of become a means to an end. I mean, I think people sort of tend to see the, um, the obvious parallels between making comics and storyboarding.
0: I don't see it at all.
1: I know, like
0: Dash Shaw is such a great cartoonist, but he he does Lily Carre.
1: He does. Well, they both do their own thing with animation, right? I mean, right. But
0: they really see a connection
1: between animation and cartooning
0: and comics, and still. And I don't even see it. Mm. And I like animation, but I don't see. To me, I feel like it would be a completely different part of my brain working. And it has been when working on animation projects. There's something to me about cartooning where it's like that that page unit. Mm-hmm. It's that single page. I just can't get over that. That's like still is like the unsurmountable height. It's i like I can never get past trying to make a perfect page. I think that is still the impulse with each strip. It's like, this next page will be the good one. Do
1: you feel like you've gotten there or close to it? No. No? No. To me, that, that would make it maybe difficult to continue going if you don't feel like you've at least sort of like brushed up against that greatness. It's painful when you definitely think you're in the wrong business
0: when you're unhappy with the final piece. But what would make it worse and what does make it worse is the periods when you don't like the process. Mm -hmm. When you like the process in some regard, obviously you're not sitting there whistling Dixie, like this is so much fun, I love this. But you know, you can you you feel like you're gaining something out of the process, and you enjoy your day around working. Then that helps, and you can feel like you're getting better. You feel like there's things you and every I'd say every four years as a cart, maybe you've heard this before, Mm -hmm. but I think every three four years as a cartoonist, you feel you've like you've like passed a level, and you sort of you're at next step, and you're like oh.
1: Like oh I can now draw feet. Four years high school, four years of college. That's really (laughs) that's the. I mean it's 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 it is the sort of the next the next step. You're you're kind of graduating onto the next thing. I mean obviously that is a good sign that you feel like you're heading in the right direction.
0: Yeah, and I think it's it's more about like if you can enjoy the process. So like for me, my life more and more. One of the joys of getting older is to me is being able to acknowledge. It becomes much more binary, like yes or no, good or bad. Hmm. These things either help me work, they either help me feel good, they either help me, like, get through the day. Because if the goal, if the goal of everything is to make a good comic, which it is, then everything else around your day is either helping that thing or getting in the way of that thing. So from, like, social media intake to how long you walk the dog to how you eat, what you eat, it all sort of, you know, because that's what you're trying to do. Because at a certain point you realize you're never really doing this for money, you're never really doing it for attention. You just enjoy the process. Like, I mean, it has to be your relationship with it. it has to be valuable.
1: You, I mean, you have to have a life. You have children outside of that. Yeah. You have th- there has to be totally. s- stuff going on outside. I mean, it's different, right? It's different than being in your early 20s to now. Your life can't be exactly structured around that. In your 20s, you're like, when things
0: are going well, you sort of have a sense why. Like yeah. with work, when things are going bad, you don't know why. Mm. You sort of stumble. When I was doing a strip like Poor Sailor it felt right when it was working and when it didn't, when it wasn't working, I didn't know what was wrong with it. I didn't know how to fix it. I would just sort of flounder around till I find it. And so now, you know, I feel like with time you develop certain skills where you can acknowledge like, Oh, things are working well because of this. Things are going bad. I I, I may not have the solution, but I can at least, I can see what the problem is. Mm -hmm. So everything sort of revolves around that. Obviously kids I love having kids and I love having a family and I love doing other stuff, but it's still very much that life work, work balance thing is like, you know, those are things that you, as you get older, you just sort of refine and refine and refine, you know, I'd like to think that as I get older, I'll be more productive. The work will be better, you know, like most things that you hear, like most stereotypical things. It's like maybe it's true for squares, but then you realize like, oh, it's kind of not true. Like all the stuff I heard about being a parent, all the things I heard about being married, all the sort of typical things. None of those things actually panned
1: out to be true (laughs) in my case. And so the same with like getting older, I'm like, I actually like it. Do you feel though that because you have this better idea of what works and what doesn't that you're less inclined to experiment? (sighs) Well, it depends what
0: the goal is. It's not experimentation just for the sake of experimentation. Mm-hmm. Usually the way I work, I usually start with a, you know, it's it's usually based around stories and narrative. So you're experimenting because you're trying to find a way. I know like um, Adrian Tomine, at least what he's told me is that he'll change his process from story to story. He's still constantly f- trying to find hmm. another way of working. I don't know if he's trying to look for the way mm-hmm. or he just likes to switch it up. For me, because there's so many distractions throughout the day – as a father and uh, with other jobs and things, I'm trying to just like refine a system that gets me in the chair and productive. You're trying to expedite the process or cut,
1: cut out the unnecessary fat. In this case, unnecessary fat would be indecision. Yeah. And uh, not, not making shortcuts with the comics themselves necessarily. Yeah.
0: Like I've, I've learned, uh, I recently did a job. I got to do a story for a magazine where uh, I wrote the piece. I owned it. They just gave me the subject matter. They wanted to run it, and it was a well-paying job. In many ways, it's the ideal cartooning gig, right? And I realized I did not enjoy the process, and I wasn't enjoying the process. And so when I thought about it, I realized it was because I felt that there was this other pair of eyes over my shoulder waiting for it. And then not only that, I was only working as hard as what I thought they might want. Whereas with an issue of Cricket's the standard is my standard which is its own weird thing but it's when i'm doing an illustration or doing anything for someone else i'm i'm not even thinking about my standard i'm constantly aware of another person so it's a it's a problem i have somebody else's name being on it or
1: being in somebody else's magazine you feel like you're doing kind of the bare minimum of what they expect
0: not the bare minimum i'm just constantly try um, i have anxiety based around making them happy i think susan dewitt has talked about this Mm. where she said like for her she only will give something to uh, a magazine or or, or an anthology if it's already finished something that's already done because she can't work with these sort of overall things and it's not that i can't do it i can do it and you can sort of work through Mm -hmm. it but i've learned like I don't enjoy that process. Some artists like having really intense deadlines and they thrive on getting as much out as possible. And for me, it's just, I realized slow and steady, the only, because there isn't any reward except the piece itself. If, if I take a shortcut on the page, it always bothers me forever. So it's just, I've developed a weird process where I just like to work on it till it feels
1: done. People need deadlines in order to actually get anything done in order to sort of motivate themselves to get out a deadline. I give myself a
0: weekly deadline and I
1: usually send my
0: finished page to one or two friends. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's my got to hit it by Friday night. They're expecting it quote unquote.
1: So you've got them at a point where they've sort of become your nagging publishers. In a
0: way, it's just a way of like, look what you're saying. Those own personal deadlines of like, you know, in the shower in the morning, you'd be like today, the page has to be penciled. It has to be done today today it has to be done and once you sort of lock that in, mm. in your brain the whole day revolves around whatever other stuff is happening that page getting penciled has to happen
1: So do you feel like you've structured your life like a pretty standard like office nine to five job from that standpoint Yeah from home
0: I mean not nine to f- I mean it's not nine to five it's just like trying to work in the mornings on
1: comics yeah. and
0: then whatever what whatever other, whatever other stuff comes up. You know, there's a million things that come up with three children and then just yeah. work, you know?
1: I have to imagine that having children make the time more precious, you know, in, in that you have less of it.
0: Yeah, but it goes back to that thing of like getting older, trying to be – not that I'm super old, obviously.
1: But just trying
0: to refine how you go through that daily grind Yeah, and enjoy the moment and be present. I know it's such a dumb thing and people say it all the time, but I don't know, man. I feel like I spent the last 20 years – looking, like, ahead constantly, Mm -hmm. and it's only in the last two years where I'm constantly just going, like, wow, like, right here, right now, it's just, like, perfect, this is so good.
1: In the early days, did you feel like you didn't enjoy the process in the same way? I
0: definitely didn't. I I still, look, it's very hard. I don't feel like a natural artist, and I don't feel like, every single page is blood from a stone. It's not easy. I keep hoping that I'll come up with a story where the visual style that best suits it is, like wizard of id you know mm-hmm. and maybe there will be but right now the stories i'm telling are so dependent on setting and mood that they're just I, it's just so not my natural none of it feels very natural but i i'm committed to just doing the strip
1: do you think that being an editor yourself that having done the anthology for as long as you have has given you a better idea of what editors are looking for no no not at all I mean, obviously your relationship to the comics that go in Kramer's are different than what somebody in a magazine is looking for out of a product.
0: I mean, as a cartoonist, my you know, I can talk to contributors and they feel like they're talking to someone who knows mm-hmm. what they're dealing with. So it's a little bit different, but it's, it's it, you know, it, it's a malleable, constantly shifting thing depending on the artist. You know, there's no standard way of sort of dealing with
1: it was it this idea of life getting in the way is that why it's been so long between nine and ten
0: no kramers is a weird thing where and i'm sure every editor knows this but it took me a long time to really feel it Mm. is that like an issue is only as good as the material you get so you're just like waiting and building it slowly but surely and you know i was hoping it would come out more regularly that's what i wanted because i think that's what comics kind of need kind of needs right now but it took two years it took a while
1: Whatever. I know it's a year late. I assume at a certain point, um, solicitations get a little bit easier once people realize what the product is. But it sounds like things have kind of slowed down in terms of people handing in in work for you.
0: I mean, you get stuff. Some
1: stuff just comes in.
0: People send you stories that they're working on. And that's always, I'm always grateful for that.
1: It's just sort of assumed on their end that there's going to be another one.
0: Kind of, but they also don't know the format. So people will just send me work and they'll Mm -hmm. be like, hey, I did this. I don't know if you're doing an issue, I don't know the format of the issue, so I don't know if this is a good fit, but, you know, take a look. And, you know, I, there's so many artists that I respect and like, and then it's just a matter of if it'll fit in this particular book. Uh, depending on the size and the sort of feel of the whole thing,
1: that's an interesting aspect. I mean, obviously, again, there's the limitations of the format itself, the dimensions, things like that. But at what point does that feel become clear? At what point does the sort of the do you figure out the thesis statement for the next volume? It's interesting.
0: With this one, I didn't even want to give people page dimensions initially. I was like, I don't know, just can't you just just like. It'll be like magazine-like. In in that you didn't know what they were going to be? Because I didn't want... After the last couple issues, I did not want to be locked in on a format without knowing what the content is. Usually, content is first, then form. You see the comic and you go, oh, this needs to be a big book. This needs to be small. With the last couple issues of Kramer's, not nine, but with the huge one, seven, and the small one, eight, it was format... It was coming up with a format first and trying to... fit stuff into this mold and it was very difficult with this. I knew I wanted to work with certain artists and it was really just going like reaching out to them and saying, what do you reckon? Do you want to do it? And once people jumped on board, it was finding that size. I like the size and all. I mean, you know, I like that it was exactly raw size. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was nice to sort of connect it. To that heritage a little bit.
1: At a certain point, you hit kind of a, a critical mass. You've got a few of them in, and you're like, this is starting to shape up in a certain dimension.
0: Yeah, that's right. And it starts to build. And yeah. then you start cutting stuff as well. Because you start feeling like, oh, this isn't actually, you're not doing, it's not serving the book. It doesn't serve the artists. Because now the context has shifted a little bit, it's changed. So you do start making changes. And then there are certain things where you start building a sense of it. And then like working on my own fiction, I never know what the themes are up front. I'm sort of just blindly going on a on a a notion. Yeah. You know? So I knew I wanted the book to start with some sort of text piece about comics. And so I was looking for something. But you know, it's very it's hard to pinpoint exactly what. And so that's throughout the whole process. You start thinking like, oh table of contents, it should go in the should go in the back. We can put something here and you start building it. And then, of course, as
1: soon as you get the copy back in hand, you're like,
0: oh, this whole book is about my dad or whatever.
1: You know, now that you've got some distance now that it's coming out, what's the theme?
0: Well, it's not – nothing is explicit. You want readers to sort of see these various Mm -hmm. strands – and try to build connections between them.
1: You don't want to spell it out for people. No,
0: I don't, I don't mind talking about it. I feel like I'm, that's, if people are listening to a podcast, then they want it sort of broke down. But I definitely think it's about being a cartoonist. It's about having a love of comics, Mm. a one way love, you know, it's like this relationship that gives nothing back in many ways as a reader. And as a maker, it's about, there's a weird thread running through the book of like economic uncertainty There's like money is like a thing, which I thought was really weird that I hadn't noticed when I was I didn't notice it explicitly when I was putting it together. Do
1: you feel that that outside of this book itself, that that was there was something happening in the zeitgeist that that cartoonists are just kind of writing about their their stress, their anxiety around surviving? Obviously, that's, you know, these are conversations we've been having forever. I know.
0: I don't know, because with the last two, there was so much war stuff. That I was just like, I guess that's always been a theme in comics. Yeah. Maybe that's always what people go to. But this one, there isn't that much violence. It's a lot of like economic, weird economic stuff. Will Sweeney did a comic where a guy works in a factory, there's like a visiting dignitary. Mm-hmm. And while he's showing the dignitary how this contraption, the contraption where he works, where all he does is cut a pipe. This is a very fantastical, psychedelic story, but Ostensibly, That's all the guy does. He cuts pipe into one particular size and he's showing the guy and the guy says, what does that button do? And before you can tell him to stop, he cuts off the guy's hand and then they just keep walking on the tour and the guy spends the rest of the story looking for his hand. That was like super explicit. I was like, wow, this story kind of gets to the heart of like what a lot of stuff is going on because there's a Matthew Thurber strip on the belly band right as you open the book. And that's the thing about, you know, someone asks an artist, do you have kids? And he's like, of course not. Are you crazy? Yeah, it's just a running thing I noticed, but only recently.
1: I don't know that things feel on on that front when it comes to sort of the the creative economy or whatever, that things feel that much more dire than they did 10 years ago. I mean, it feels like we've been at this point for a while now. Well, definitely people in the arts have been here for a long time. I think it's now
0: the rest of the world, like musicians, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, like... When people start talking about streaming and how they can't make it, make any money from yeah. their music, I'm like, "Well, welcome to our world."
1: As I mentioned to you earlier, I was in L.A. for this uh, video game show. This is a conversation I'm having now with video game publishers. Is that
0: a thing in video games?
1: It's going to be. In the next couple of years, it's going to be because, you know, obviously, like everyone's talking about how video games are the most popular form of entertainment. There's all this money to be made. But now conversations are being had around streaming services and gaming. Those are being launched this year. So the idea of making pennies on the dollar for publishers, that's gonna be hitting them as well. I mean for for better or for worse, the arts are always kind of at the tip of the spear.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's a it's uh it's a freaky thing. I can't it just goes back to like uh, you know, you read history and you look at the New Deal and you look at all the things that are put in place to take care of the workers mm-hmm. and the working class and to build a middle class, and how all that was eroded from, like, the day Reagan came in. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's got to turn at some point. Like you just – it's I just don't see it. Like I just
1: – It's the way I feel about every time I visit San Francisco or Los Angeles and I see the the homeless problem that's gotten completely out of control where it feels like everything's got – as they call it in AA is hitting bottom, right? <laughs> I mean things are going to have to get really bad I think before yeah. they start to get better.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean at a certain point, if even if you're – no matter how libertarian you are, no mm-hmm. matter how much of a, a capitalist you are, at a certain point, you have to be – you have to like start using common sense. Sure. Like it's just not working. Yeah. Like, like it doesn't. Like a society can't work. It can't. It can't function if so few people have all the money. Like you know what
1: I mean? Where there's that huge disparity. Yeah.
0: But we're not going to solve it here.
1: When you start having kids and you start thinking about economic security, does that does that make you rethink the career as as a cartoonist?
0: I figure. I never looked at comics as a way to be the sole the sole way to pay the bills, and I looked at. When I consider any of the writers that are meaningful to me, they never made a living solely from their mm-hmm. writing. They all taught, or they worked, or they had day jobs, or something. So I've always felt like, you know, you can make a living doing comics, or doing illustration, mm-hmm. whatever the thing is that you love, I shouldn't say illustration, but, If you love making comics, you can probably do it the same way a writer in the fifties was like. If you want to make a living as a writer, you you know, you could probably do it. If you want to just, if that's how you want to, you know. But I don't want to just draw, you know, My Little Pony. That was never like an option. Mm -hmm. I never liked those. For me personally, it just never excited me the idea of getting paid to draw a comic where someone handed me a script and I'd, you know, I'd turn it into something and I hacked it out or. Even if it was all the time in the world, it's like my relationship to comics is so wrapped up with my own process and my own need to say something very specific, you know? So I don't look at it as an economic engine necessarily. But the thing that happens is you do an issue of crickets, the momentum's built, you're like, great, I'm going to go right in the next issue. It comes out, then the New York Times calls, right? And then like the LA Times calls, and then this client calls and Red Bull calls and because everyone sees this fucking comic book with every cartoonist by the way this isn't just me every cartoonist releases like a new issue or a new book all the momentum they have to jump into the next thing it's people look at it as a business card and they want to hire you then and then the next six months you're spent you know Doing,
1: making money. Do you really feel like it's a one-way street? You have readers who love your stuff. Yeah. You do get these calls. There is some sort of, there's residual goodness that comes out of the the making of comics. I mean, it is, you do feel like you're banging your head against the wall, but once it's out in the world.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's hard. I think, I think because you're in a room by yourself for so long, you really do not get a sense of the audience at all. It's strange. Cause I am, I am on Instagram mm-hmm. and I'm kind of on Twitter. I have a Twitter account, but I'm not active. Mm-hmm. Active. So you're aware that people are like into what you do, but it's not really real in any sort of way. And you do feel like sometimes when it's hard, if you've spent, and I've done this when you spent like two, three, four weeks on a page or a sequence and you're killing yourself on it. You're just like, I'm fucking crazy. This is fucking nuts. Uh, it just does not seem to make sense. As a as a thing to do and to be stressed out by it seems really crazy because it doesn't seem like there's a there's enough interest or that it's even working that also I just want to say you know of course like I've been doing these book events for Kramers mm-hmm. and when people say like they like a story or they like something or whatever it's very humbling I'm I, I, it's so nice it is so nice cuz i think comics readers are also like the perfect kind of readers they're they're deeply curious they're engaged they invest you know they really like look for stuff they're not passive book buyers And so I really relate to comic readers in that way. Like, I feel like they're,
1: uh, it's great.
0: And I definitely appreciate it. It's true. It's not a one-way street. It's just uh, ridiculous medium in so many ways.
1: Are you able to get that sense of gratification? Is it the same when it's, when it's an anthology, when it's primarily somebody else's work? No. When people compliment me on Kramer's, I always feel like, uh, it's like stolen valor.
0: (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm like, I, I feel like it's unfair. I did one Kramer signing where I was the only person there. And even though I have a 24-page story in the mm-hmm. new issue and I edited the issue, I still felt very uncomfortable. I, I approach the issue like like I approach my fiction, like I mentioned before about following notions and trusting your God and letting it slowly build the same way I do with my, my own work. But I don't feel like it's mine. It's a way for me to engage with the medium and engage with other cartoonists, but mostly with the medium. Because I think there's a certain amount of time that you spend working, and then there's a certain amount of time you spend reading and engaging. So you could either go online, or you can read, or you can talk to people on the phone about the medium, uh, or get together, uh, drink and draws, and social things. I think Kramer's fills that space for me. It's a way for me to like engage and think about the medium, but it's a little bit in-depth as far as a hobby.
1: I have to imagine it's different engaging than, than just reading a book by somebody you like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have your goals with Kramer's – I mean, have they shifted throughout, throughout the years? Are you They have heard... shifted.
0: I think after 10, I think what I wanted – sorry, after 9, yeah. the last issue. To me, the thing that I, I felt like comics need would be something that came out regularly and paid better. You know, so I spent a lot of time really trying to figure out what does a like quarterly Lapham's or Paris Review type thing look like.
1: Obviously, there's a breakdown here because it's been a few years since the last one came out.
0: Right. Well, that was the thing. Yeah. I spent a lot of time thinking, how do you do it? How do you make something that is more regular that people can get money back? For, you know, if they get Mm -hmm. it published and I really tried to figure it out and it was really difficult. And I was like, I don't think I can, I don't think I can wrap my head around it with the time that I can give it. Uh, In the meantime, I thought, okay, well, let's try to do this big oversized issue 10. Let's just do it and maybe that'll come out quickly. And initially as this work came in, I was like, maybe we'll do 10 and 11. I'll put them both together and then we'll separate them. And I was talking to Fanographics about what, if, you know, how high can we make the page rate if we minimize the page counts? So they're hmm. not 300 page books, but they're 120 page books. What does that look like? But it all failed on that level. And so it's kind of – it makes you go like, ah, is this needed? Is it needed? I don't know. I like the book. I think it's a cool book. But I'm like, what what comics – What like what alternative or literary comics or whatever you want to call it, like the kind of comics I make and the kind of comics you read. Anything that's – there's no institutional support. Very little. It's starting to happen. But anything that can like edge towards something that respects the author and the work and that can be like, here's a paycheck – and here's a thing that's well printed and mm-hmm. here's a thing that's well distributed and is a context that removes it from cartoons, from illustration, from pop culture. I think that's important, you know, especially like when the vast majority of the artists that I'm interested in and working with don't really make work in that context in their own minds. They pull from it. Someone like Charles Burns pulls from the, the junk heap that is American mm-hmm. pop culture. Of the 50s and 60s, but he doesn't necessarily
1: like, he's not like a rockabilly juxtapose pop art Robert Williams yep.
0: tattoo guy.
1: The artists that you're working with are, they're not people who are having trouble being taken seriously. You know, you don't have to present them in a serious matter in order for people to approach them that way. It's more about respecting the work that they're doing. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, you you probably haven't seen the new issue yet, Mm -hmm. but it's like a big comic book. It looks like a big, you ever seen those big DC annuals from Mm the seventies? It's like that. I'm reading Wonder Woman with my daughter. It's like same size, 11 by 14, big and shiny. Is it pulpy in that sense? The interior paper is very pulpy, actually. It's, uh. If you've yeah. sort of done a 180 then, in a sense. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I think, I think, and I've never really been able to parse it exactly with Kramers, but I think that when it works is that it feels very, it feels like it's the whole book is connecting the current moment of comics mm. to its history and that it's part of a continuum. And if we think of this like river of literature this river of art and you just want to contribute to it and you want to throw in. And so I think Kramer's at its best and it, it, it feels like uh, it has a connection to all the comics of the past that felt personal and idiosyncratic, you know, like, you know, like other art comics from George Harriman through artists of the 60s and 70s, 80s. And I think you don't have to make the book look literary. You don't have to make the book look serious, you know, whatever that means. You don't have to get like a Swiss designer to put it together. It doesn't have to be a hardcover. But it means that the work has to be presented with integrity, you know, and it has to, you want it like, if you're going to have typesetting, have the typesetting work have everything conform to the rules of whatever
1: you're working with. It's definitely a distinct approach from most anthologies, right? I mean, in most anthologies, the, the publishing is kind of an afterthought. Right? Hmm. Seems seems to I don't be. Know. I mean, they I don't know. you know they seem like, or at least traditionally, when you see sort of collections of work and comics, it's not presented as an object in and of itself in the same way. Right.
0: Right. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, for me, the 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 sort of evergreen inspirations. Our raw weirdo, the Smithsonian book. There's something about just flipping through a big book or a big magazine and just that variety of content. And then I feel like they age really well. I love looking at old magazines for that same reason. Mm -hmm. I love looking at ads and letters pages. and I love the juxtaposition between all that stuff. So as far as new anthologies, Mold Map is kind of amazing from England. That's kind of incredible.
1: Speaking of Raw and Spiegelman, it's some, you know something that he talks about a lot is is the importance of the the book as a physical object. Mm. And certainly when Kramer's was really coming into its own, it was a time when everything was moving digital. I mean, how much were these formats a statement of the importance of the the physical print object? I wasn't thinking about digital at all.
0: I think you can really go to like Acme Number One. It's like it's like you know. Before Christ, after Christ, you know, yeah. it's like before the fall, after the fall. After Acme 1, if all comics are going format crazy. You know, if if, if Chris Ware has contributed one thing to comics, <laughs> it's that everyone was like, oh yeah, you can kind of make the format be a part of the content. And I've always just tried to find formats that made sense for the issue. For the most part, it, it, I know it doesn't seem like it, but almost all the issues are, like, just slightly – they're, like, squarish, slightly above 8.5 by 11-ish. Mm-hmm. You Just know? at a different scale. Well, there <laughs> was the super big one, but that was yeah. because I was trying to do the page of – I was trying to – we did an issue – I feel like I should explain to people, but – uh, I thought it would be interesting to do an issue where every, where it was the same format as the original newspaper size. But it's kind of a ridiculous size because you can't even take in the page. Like, I don't think people read the
1: newspaper that way. I think Mm-mm. they folded it two yeah.
0: or three or four times.
1: A newspaper doesn't have the weight to it. Right. So you can't, you can't lie in bed and read that issue. <laughs> learned. Probably without, without <laughs> concussing yourself. Yeah. I, I got the idea that in the early days, a big part of the reason why the anthology came about was as a way of kind of showcasing a lot of these uh, at the time still relatively underground people. I mean, obviously, when you've got Kim Deitch or Dash Shaw or any of those people in there, these aren't people who necessarily need that exposure. And, and the people that you're selling creamers to aren't going to be people who don't like right. already know them.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's true. And at a certain point, I realized like, I don't think I care who's in it. It can be someone that's we can include people who,
1: who are being published often as long as the story is fantastic. You don't care who's in it from the standpoint of you don't care how much exposure they have. You yeah. Okay. Like,
0: meaning, I, I don't, I think the end, if we go for, if we start at the end, which I think is like my usual way of working, I go, okay, what's the end goal? If a great collection of short comics is the collect, is the goal, then you, then you go, okay. Where can I get that from? I don't care who I get that from. The book starts, the inside front cover of Kramer's Tent is by Noah Van Skyver. Noah is like one of the most prolific cartoons. He's not having trouble getting published these days. Right. But when I said, <laughs> hey, do you want to submit? Yeah. It wasn't, there's no guarantee of being included. It's mm. just, hey, if you have something, you know, this is the format. If you think you, you got something that fits at the size, send it in. He sends me a comic and it's like, it's one of those one in a thousand. You know, you read Peanuts and you'll read Peanuts and it's like, Good strip, turn the page, good strip, good strip, good job, Schultz, good job. And then every once in a while, he, he like slaps you in the face. Yeah. It's so good. And it's great because he has done hundreds of good ones. Mm. So I, I looked at Noah's like that. I was like, Noah is always great, but this is amazing.
1: You think Kramer's is in a place now, it, it's, it's well established enough that people are going to be saving that face slapper? no.
0: I don't think so at this all. This was just lucky? I think it was lucky. I think Noah's just on a roll and he's just working and I, he could have said, it's very possible that if I asked him a week later, I would have mm. done something else completely different. I mean, though, maybe if we talked to him, he'd be like, no, I, I, that was the best trip I've ever done. But you just sort of, so you just go from that point of like, I just need to get great work. It can be from someone who's actually, people don't like anymore, who has fallen out of fame. I feel like we've definitely done that. We've run people that people have kind of, you know, washed their hands of and been like, you know, take a look at this. This is an amazing comic by someone you
1: haven't read in a while. You feel like you're taking it comic by comic.
0: Comic by comic. There's definitely an added, on top of that, there's another level of like, yes, what you were saying. If there's someone who's who has not ever been published that's saying color or has not ever been published by another publisher, that that's a nice added sort of element. But it's not the number one.
1: That's sort of kind of the traditional value of the anthology or the compilation tape, right, is exposing artists to people that they they haven't seen, you know, giving somebody a a surprise. You know, obviously, like if it's a Chris Ware, people like Chris Ware, they're going to buy anything that Chris Ware is already in. But if you can pull something out, if you can show people something they've never seen before, that's pretty powerful.
0: Yeah, I mean, I know that like for me, picking up an anthology as a teenager or even now, yeah. but especially when I was younger, you pick up an anthology and the first time you see like
1: an Al Columbia. When you were younger you, and, and you and you, know, you only have 15, 20 bucks. Right. You buy the compilation tape. Right. I got a raw –
0: the big raw with the Kaz cover out of a one dollar box mm-hmm. at a comic book convention in L.A.
1: They Is must have it? printed a ton of those. They must I have printed everywhere. That's so funny. Yeah,
0: but I remember flipping through it and like first time I saw Gary Panter's work. Mm-hmm. First time I'm seeing Spiegelman's work. First time I'm seeing all kinds of people. Fascinating. That, that is a bonus, but I don't think you can start there. You know what I mean? Because yeah. if you do that, then where's your standard of quality? Cause it's new. We all have like that excitement of seeing something new. And I've definitely run stuff that I've regretted later because I'm like, eh, there was no there there. It was exciting and it seemed like they might sure. be onto something, but it was kind of like shallow.
1: A shallow, good-looking person. Do you approach it from the standpoint of, like, sequencing an album in that this Noah Strip is first, so you gotta have a a good lead-off track?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You definitely want to, like... There's the whole flow. It's funny, because I don't think anyone reads it in order, but I remember everyone made a big to-do about when Scott McCloud guest edited The Best American. And I guess in the introduction, he said, read it in order because it was placed all in order. It was like, yeah, no shit. Like, obviously, aren't all these things put in order? But you're not going to ask the reader to read it in order. Just read it any which way you want. But yes, if you do start it at the beginning and work your way to the back, hopefully it's a a really good read.
1: What is that order? I mean, are you finding common threads between the stories No, I don't like that.
0: I don't like anything...
1: You're not uh, forcing a narrative onto it. Yeah, you don't want to do that.
0: What I'm looking at is spreads. Mm -hmm. You know, as far as there's the first thing, I'm just does the stuff look good next to each other? Because I've definitely made that mistake in issues past where I'm like, oh god, these look. This was I didn't do either of these artists. uh, 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 You know, I didn't do them justice by placing them next to each other. It became a muddle. It's how stuff looks next to each other. But mainly, you want to start. For me, I want like a good solid short story that sort of hits as many buttons at once. Like it's narrative, it's visual, it's funny. There's some sort of deeper sort of emotional stuff. I just want a good all round short story. So in this issue it was Dashaw, police woman. And then I feel like once you do that, you've now like set, you've set a certain expectation and then you can sort of fuck with that expectation. I can't remember what comes next. Maybe it's a crumb story or it's Collier, but then, you know, so like medium short, then you can, you know, you're going to squeeze in the big long ones. You're going to spread them. Anouk Ricard, who's this great cartoonist from France, she has a handful of one pages throughout the book. So it's a matter of just like scattering that stuff. You know, it is very much like a mixtape.
1: I suspect in the earlier day, in the early days, you were um, more inclined to put in bigger names, you know, regardless of the quality or, or the way it fit in. In that, like, oh, it interesting, was a good opportunity for you to get some in there. I don't know if that
0: happened because there was. I don't know if that happened. Yeah. I think the big issue, the big tall book, was the only one that you could ask really big names. Purely, you could ask everyone because it's like at that size, everyone's new. They're all fresh at that size. But overall, I don't know. I mean, the truth is that all the people I've asked who were hard to get or who have never been in it or it took years to get them in it mm. were not necessarily big names. Debbie Dreschler, for example. You know, I would love to get Debbie Dreschler – uh, in the issue, in one of those issues, uh, Sherry Flanagan was someone I was talking to for a while, and then we finally got her in issue ten.
1: Was it ever difficult to reject people?
0: Well, it sucks.
1: Yeah, it sucks
0: because you want to believe that there's a common respect and understanding that if I've asked you that I'd like to see something that it's not even it's not even an issue with the story. On its own terms.
1: You're not approaching anyone who you don't want to see in the book.
0: Exactly. Like, you try to start from a place of, like, mutual respect. We like each other's work. I like your work. I'm asking you to submit something in the hopes that it fits into this thing. This thing is a particular thing, and hopefully the thing that you're doing can fit into it. If it doesn't, it's still a bummer to be like, I like... Because it's always good, because I like the person's work. But it's just not... Sometimes something that's good isn't good in all instances,
1: is there an understanding in your own mind, and in your own life, that you're just going to keep doing this? This is thing? the
0: last one, I think. I think so. Really? I think so. I don't. I, didn't, I Haven't made it like a official, and I don't want to make it official because something might come up yeah. where you sorry. don't want
1: to do a Rolling Stones. <laughs> I don't
0: want to do a Rolling Stones, but I, I, uh, I think. I really want to hone in on my own work as much as possible. Let
1: me ask you this before you before yeah. you continue: Have any other issues felt like the last issue?
0: Uh, no. This is its own sort of thing. I like this one a lot. It's 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 slimmer than a usual hmm. issue, I think. But I think it's I think it's solid.
1: It's number ten. It's like twenty years this year, or next year, right? Yeah, twenty years. Yeah, when I was eighteen. So it's is it those milestones, or it's just your own life is kind of taking precedence now?
0: I just think, I think it's there, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect it to be hard, but it's actually super hard to make the anthology. And I think that there's other editorial opportunities. There's so many books that I'm interested in making that are with individual artists who are either alive or dead. There's other weird projects that I want to do. Uh, And I just think like, like what I was saying before, what I think comics needs like when I think what my, myself included, I don't know if, if, if Kramer's is the best avenue for that, you know? That said, I think the issue is really good. And when I look at it, I'm like, I want to make another one. <laughs> but, you know, who knows? Right now I got to just focus on finishing Blood of the Virgin. You know, I've been on that for 12 years and I'm like, what, a year and a bit out? And I'm just like, let's just focus on that. Maybe another Kramer's happens when well, that's done, but I don't know.
1: There you go. That was Sammy Harkham. You can check out his stuff over at sammyharkham.com And the new issue, Kramer's 10, is available now. Thanks so much to him for taking the time to do that. I think that might actually be the first time I spoke to him, or at least interviewed him officially on the record, which is kind of shocking given how long I've been speaking to uh, comics people. But I uh, really enjoyed that talk. Thanks to him. Thanks to you guys, as always, for listening to the program. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes, Google Podcast, We're on Spotify and YouTube. Follow us on Tumblr. That's rwellcast.tumblr.com. If you have any feedback, it's rwellcast at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook. And that's about all we got for now. So stick around because we're going to be back in another week with another episode
0: of R.I.Y.L.